0: Welcome back, PCICS members, to part two of our conversation with Dr. Donna Ballard and Dr. Mary Waller on taking back time. Hope you enjoy. I feel like what I'm taking away from this is a theme that both of you guys are saying in in sort of two different ways, but similar ways that, you know, Dr. Waller talks about action times and relief times and Dr. Ballard talking about Kronos and Kairos. And what I'm sort of taking in is that there's an ebb and flow to the day and that there each philosophy can be of service if we um, choose to recognize its value and its purpose. And, you know... just like you were saying in the previous examples or you know for example maybe you're so into the the event of a situation maybe even a procedure that's not even very stressful but it's consuming you as the event that you don't notice an hour has passed by and there's an opportunity to use the time stamp to like let's check back in what's the risk benefit ratio of proceeding on this and and how How can we um, be more mindful or how can we better navigate between the push and the pull of the action and the relief and the Kairos and the chronos, and sort of when we're um, really enveloped in one, how can we be mindful to step back and reflect on if there would be service to engage in the other philosophy? Is there a way that you can train yourself?
1: All I would say is um, I think it is – I think it goes back to the team, like when it's a team context, is that you get the benefit of everyone, right? And so someone else, you might be pulled in and someone else can step back and say, okay, let's let's shift. Like right, there's no there's no perfection, it's just always a process of of trying to to get better at this practice. And so if that's the norm and as as Lillian said, if people all have voice then I feel better going into it with a team that feels the ability to share and have their voice and that I have a relationship with. I feel more confident that even if I forget, someone else will remember. But individually, yes, we, you know, it is ideal. And I i love that, Sadie, the idea that we all just keep trying, as you said, like to, to, balance to, to go come back to it. So whatever works for you, but if I'm in a team of coll- of esteemed colleagues, I'm going to bet on my team of esteemed colleagues to help pull me back. And that when then my, my colleague gets pulled too far away, that if there's trust, then I can help pull her or him, him back similarly. So, so Mary though, you, I want to hear what you have to say.
2: Well, uh, y- Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I I had to depend on the team for for everything. That's why I never write. I never do any research by myself because I'll. I mean, I'll go down the rabbit hole. You'll never see me again. It right? I totally. I I, totally. I, de- I depend on my on my team for to to pull me back. Absolutely. Um, and and but it won't work without trust. It won't work without a shared mental model and, and trust, even though we're always dealing with status differential and hierarchy. Um, you know, those organizational impediments we were talking about earlier, they're going to be there. Um, but you you know that there are teams that get around those things and there are teams that don't. And so what makes a difference there? it's 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 up to the team to deal with them, and it's really up to the leader, isn't it? You know, you know because you've been on those teams, there are leaders that go, hierarchy, schmiarchy, here's how this team is going to work. You know, we're going to look out for each other. We're going to have each other's backs. And here's how we're going to deal with tough situations. and they model really appropriate, healthy behaviors in their teams. So why can't we have more than that going on?
1: I love that, Mary. And, you know, one last thing I'll say is it reminded me of how um, in the Children's Advocacy Center teams, the MDTs, the each discipline brought their own strengths to it. And the, the thing that led to sort of the, the, um, the real cohesion was that they got it. At a certain point, the law enforcement said, Hey, having these therapists in here, this is really helping me out. I'm not used to talking about my feelings. I don't get to do this back, you know, at the station. And then the therapist got and, and the CPS and all the other people, the sort of the status and power accorded to prosecutors and law enforcement. I mean, it was the sense of we're all coming together and there was, there were differences. And you you could potentially talk about power, but that really went out the door because when you recognize that everyone's needed, we wouldn't be a team if everyone here wasn't needed. There's not just some people are more important, some people are less. We wouldn't be constructed as a team if I didn't need you and you didn't need me.
3: I wanted to kind of expand on that because I think some cynical people would say that our ICU teams... Have lots of moving parts. And when you have ever evolving different members of a team contributing to a team on one particular day, how is it possible to build trust in a team like that? And Mary, you had alluded a little bit to leaders kind of being responsible for the tone of the team and. Making sure that there are things like psychological safety, like Amy Edmondson's work and things like that. But how do you build it so quickly when there is a lot of turnover in our units and our teams are very different every single day of the week?
2: Well, part of that is, is the culture of the organization, or at least the culture of the unit, the culture of the department. I mean, you've worked in, in places where you can, you can walk in and spend a couple of hours and you get a pretty good sense of the culture of the unit, right? Just by listening to how people talk to each other, how people talk about each other. It doesn't take too long to get a handle on whether or not people respect each other. Um, and, and and what the vibe is, I mean, w- there's been so much research done on on how we form first impressions of people. It, it happens so quickly, and we get so much information from each other based on nonverbals. Um, and and that's that's true if you're going on a date or if you're working with someone in an ICU. It it really is true, and and so so. Part of that information on on quick-forming teams, you know, um, temporary teams um, uh, happens because that information is modeled and communicated from the leader. Um, And how does it come from the leader? And why is it it consistent in a unit? Because, well, the leaders are, are acting in a fairly consistent way. Where are they getting their information well, from the people who are managing them, where are they getting their information? Well, from the people who are managing them. You know, it all kind of filters down, doesn't it? It's a it's a culture um, communicated situation. So there there is some consistency in terms of in terms of that, but but you know when you walk into a team, it, you know a team assembles uh, in an icy year in a trauma. Um, Uh, trauma department and and you might know one person maybe you've worked with one other person out of the team the other person people you you may not be uh, acquainted with you know in just a few minutes whether or not you like the team whether or not this team is going to be a fairly good performing team or whether or not this team is going to be problematic you have a sense of it if i if i froze the action after let's say 3 or 4 minutes as professionals you could give me a your opinion you could give me a pretty good read i think based on your experience and what does that opinion what is that opinion based on your interactions with your colleagues in that team how you hear them interacting with each other the tone of their voice whether or not they're interrupting each other, whether or not they're answering each other, whether or not they seem like they have accurate answers when they're asked questions, the tone of the voice of the leader of the team, all sorts of things are going on. You have a pretty good read on that team. And not only in healthcare, in aviation, in mining, in maritime, in all sorts of different contexts. So, yes, there are lots of temporary, fast-moving teams that form in healthcare, but we have a pretty good idea pretty quickly when we join a temporary team whether or not that team is going to be high-performing, mediocre, or, oh, gosh, what did I just get myself into? So, what can we do when we get on a team that we think is going to go down the tubes pretty quickly? What can we do as a team member to help rescue that team?
3: That is a really, really important question. Any answers, Mary? What we could do? I, I myself find myself that if I enter a very, very chaotic situation. I default to very directive and explicit leadership um, because I always just think of it as a graph where there's chaos on one axis and directive leadership on the other and the other just has to go up as chaos is going up. Whereas if the chaos is relatively minimal and it's a complicated, complex situation where every team member is bringing their A game, a lot of indirect kind of leadership and different people speaking up will probably function better and people are just allowed to work and execute what they do well um, without this sort of directive command like leadership but I'm definitely interested in in your your thoughts
2: yeah but directive leadership versus participative leadership if if people seem not to have the knowledge and skill necessary to handle the situation. Uh, you don't have any choice, but to be directive, right? Um, if they do, then participative or uh, indirect leadership is a lot more efficient, right? And you get them to participate in a creative way too. So empowering leadership on the other hand, uh, uh, you could call it too. So they are if they're very skilled, um, highly skilled and highly motivated people, they're actually um, uh, more likely to, to give you uh, a more creative answer to a question if you're more participative. So, yeah, if, if things seem to be going down the tubes and, and people don't seem to have the necessary skills or capabilities for the situation, then, then you you almost have to be directive. Um, in that type of situation, but oh, that's we could do a, a whole extra podcast on on different types of situations and and uh, different ideas on on how you might uh, want to handle them.
3: So one thing I can't let Donna um, not comment on. well, in addition to her shirt, I one of the things that I really got from Donna's work, is it actually helped me understand my colleagues a little bit better. So just naturally, I'm a very, very time-urgent person where I am always, always feeling like I have to do the next thing, move on to the next thing. And I certainly work with colleagues where the event, let's say an echo, is more important. So thoroughly reviewing an echo and going through it in great detail is much more important than clock time. So even though I'm feeling like I need to move on to the five other things on my task lists, um, so please give me a brief summary of the echo. Let's review it very quickly. Some people want to go through it very thoroughly and want me to make sure I understand all the nuances of said imaging or et cetera. And what I'd like Donna to comment on is how different people actually have different perceptions of time. And um, we are doing this study and maybe we'll post a link from the podcast on if people want to explore their relation, their own relationship with time, because I do think even in an industrial age where we were all brought up with clock time in the U S in particular, um, that different colleagues have different variations of how much time urgency they feel. And if you're on a different time urgency spectrum, you may feel like they're being disrespectful of your time when in fact, they're just on a different time scale. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And not not only do we all individually have our own orientation toward time, in the case you're describing in work, it's often driven by the work so the fact that it sounds to me i don't i don't know how to interpret an echo but it sounds like something that requires a really careful approach right like a really deliberative contemplative like you know it yeah, sounds exactly. like yeah like if i'm analyzing data <clears throat> certain kinds of analyses are more art like right a factor analysis we would say is more of art as you look at the screen plot there's a million different things you can do to really figure out what's going on if you really care like it depending upon how closely you want to get into the data, whereas someone who's maybe looking at that same data and isn't um doesn't care as much about quality isn't as invested might glance at it and say yeah we i, I get the i get the general idea, so it's how you know um, you know, how optimal do you want your performance to be? So that is work that would be very different than someone who has to quickly, and and only you would, would know this other scenarios, you know, you know, your work certainly better than I, but where speed is everything. And it matters more that you act than that you act perfectly, right? That there's sometimes you just have to you have to get going on it and you can't wait to analyze every last detail um, in a scenario or or on an echo. So I could imagine just as a, as a non-expert, lots of situations where you just have to do something right now. Um, So, yeah, so I do find, and I, you know, we've even looked at it across cultures, but it really does seem that work in the workplace, the work that people do Tends to empirically be a better predictor than personality. But here's what's happened in some of my earliest work: people attribute it to personality. I I once went on a tour when I was in grad school. um, In it was a shoe factory. I won't say the name of it, but it was um, a a shoe factory that was there locally in Santa Barbara, and the the guy who the director who had given me the tour, you know, was interested in my research because he said, you know, the designers, they're just so, you know, they're, they're, they don't take anything else into account. They just design for this, you know, like, well, what's it going to look like, but that someone has to make that work. And so they had a totally different orientation toward time as well, because they were, they were like, well, the design's finished when it's finished but then sales and marketing over here were like, well, we have to get that out. And then there was a middle man department who had to actually produce it and make it functional. And they were always under the most time pressure because they might get, you know, they might get it behind, you know, when they were the predictions of when that would be available. And they had to make sure that this actually worked well. So everyone was always mad at the designers because it felt like they were the ones Messing up the this just orderly flow. They were the least practical because they weren't thinking about time. They were just thinking about a beautiful shoe and what that looks like, not how it how long it's going to take to produce this or to modify this. And so everyone was always beating up the artists uh, um, in the process, and and then everyone always hated you know marketing and sales because they were the ones always tapping their tapping their uh, foot. I'm um, looking at their watch, saying, "Hurry up, hurry up!" And so they they all had stereotypes about it's because you're it's just those guys in that department, and they thought it was more personality, but it's just the nature of the work demanded different things, and and um, and that's one of the nice things about multidisciplinary teams is you get to have a more sensitivity to the multiple layers and levels, and so that if one team is much more focused on Kronos and more on Kairos that you can have respect for the fact of like, we got to get this, we got to get it done with There are some constraints and, and, and it's not a personality thing, but that's like the classic argument. And I think in organizations is personalities that people think exist, which are really just the demand. Yeah. I
3: think that's really important for us to remember and to understand that the conflict lies in the work itself, but our default sometimes is to blame it on a person on the individual level. And then as we get to know people as human beings, as individuals, we can help go against that and remind ourselves that we all are here with the same purpose, which is to take care of the child in the hospital bed, right? We all serve the same purpose, but yet, Sometimes our work has different goals um, and we just to understand each of our prerogatives better a little bit, I think will be helpful. Um, and then I guess just the last thing is, you know, a lot of times people talk a lot about teams and how great it is to have multidisciplinary and, and kumbaya, and this is great if we get to know each other. But the reality is, is that I always tell people, it's not a gap commercial, right? Like, it's not like all the colors of the rainbow get together, and it's so beautiful. Um, because the reality is, is that in that diversity, there is going to be more conflict. And in some ways, we just need to embrace that. That is a function of diversity of thought, um, is that conflict. And so how do we manage that? So I. Was hoping both of you would comment uh, on that idea.
2: Yeah, teams teams can be a royal pain in the butt, and um, they. I heard you know when I was in graduate school that you always end up studying what really gets under your skin, and so I've studied team dynamics for thirty years, and so <laughs> there you go. I you know I've always. Except for my wonderful research teams, hated working in teams. When I was in industry, I was I actually worked for a living for a decade before I went back to graduate school, and um, hated I hated working on teams. It was just the bane of my existence. Oh my gosh, I hated it. and you know, and all the corporations I worked in. It was just horrible. Plus, I was typically the only woman on the teams and, um, just felt completely outnumbered and overwhelmed. And, and so I went to graduate school thinking I was going to study technology, um, in organizations and somehow migrated to team dynamics because it's true. You study what gets under your skin and, and, uh, yeah, so it, teams are not, uh, not rainbows and unicorns and, um, um, they can be they can be awful, and it's up to us to to understand what we can do as team members. We don't have to be the leaders, you know? We don't have to be the ones sitting in the big chair to make our teams better. I think that's that's the most important thing to take away. You know, we can make our teams better, even if we are just team members. So how do we do that? We can do it by whispering in the team leader's ear, but sometimes the team leaders just don't know about things like team cohesion. They don't know about team patterns. They don't know about um, they don't know about shared mental models, and uh, they don't. They they don't know about emergent states and teams and and all the stuff that that we've studied all these years. They don't know about chronos and kairos and and slowing down to speed up. Um, they they don't they don't they don't know <laughs> about all this stuff and and it's our job to 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 not pontificate but to subtly maybe change things in teams and when we see a team leader launching into a monologue that first couple of minutes uh, a team is getting together before the patient arrives in the trauma bay maybe to say um so and so it looks like you had a question. Uh, did, did you have a question for our, for the team leader? and maybe maybe take a step to to get some other voices going uh, before the patient arrives in the trauma bay and 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 get some other voices heard and and you know just a little things like that to to improve the performance of our own teams, whether or not we're the leader. There are things that we can do. There are lots of things, it turns out, that we can do to, to improve the performance of our team. So we need to start talking
3: about that and
2: you know take things into our own hands.
3: And I guess just recognizing that team science is this area that has a tremendous amount of research and there is a lot of expertise in it, even though some of that hasn't made it to the medical schools or the nursing schools. Um, and to our team members and that we really need to start even earlier with making sure people are educated about this type of science and Mary you and I had participated in this um, hackathon where we were coming up with ideas of how to improve the knowledge of team science in our healthcare teams. And one of the things that we came up with was that the marketing is all wrong, right? People believe that teamwork is something we should have learned when we were playing in the sandbox in kindergarten. And that as long as we played sports as an elementary school kid, teamwork is something that we should all know how to do. But really, really, it's it, it's so much more nuanced than that. And that there's all this great science and researchers like the both of you who can help contribute to our understanding of how we can really optimize our team.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I'll have to confess that I'm like Mary. I tend to not be a group person. I'm quite the, I'm quite the recluse actually, Um, honestly. (laughs) And so absolutely it's important that people not think that just because we're saying teams the teams are valuable that we're not saying that they're not challenging. It's always challenging to interact with anyone besides ourselves, right? I mean that's the easy that's sometimes why I'm the most reclusive is when I'm tired and I don't want to have to interact with anyone. I want to just be in my own thoughts. But we have to I think it um I think in addition to what Mary said about being a good team member and like you know offering to to help support everyone there is to just go into it with an open mind to go against your if you're like me and have a natural inclination against teamwork except for like you said Mary when I get to pick my own dream team then I'm fine with teams if i'm if I'm going and I'm like I want to work with Mary and Lillian and Sadie then I'm like well, yeah, of course, it's going to be awesome, but th- we don't like it when teams are forced upon us and we're like, you know, we, st- it- and it does make us immediately go a bit into scarcity, a bit into, um, isolation because we don't know they're untested and we're all expert at what we do. And so we kind of are pretty confident in our own ability. And so I've just learned personally, cause Mary really is the team expert here. I study time and tend to study teams and groups, but that's really Mary Waller. From just a real practical standpoint, I just try to keep an open mind and just try to say, okay, here I am, these are human beings and connect to people's humanity. And then the rest tends to fall into place. But if I am, you know, I've been there, you kind of have a slight attitude because you're like, oh, who are these? I mean, (laughs) honestly, Sadie's laughing, but I'm being really honest, we're busy. The other thing that I think plays against teamwork is time because I know efficiency wise, a lot of things I can just do myself. I know how long it'll take. Now I know talking to people is going to require time. Learning about them is going to require time and energy. And so it does feel like, oh gosh, this is one more thing I have to do. So I get it, but I've learned to just trust in the humanity of people and just be like, greet each person as like, this is a whole person who's here for a reason and, and look to their humanity. And then I loosen up and then you get outside of time like you do. And that's what we saw, Mary, right? With the CACs, it's like you kind of get outside of time where you're no longer focused on the clock and you're just in the event. And these are interesting people with interesting lives and interesting ideas. And even if it's not like this personal thing, I just mean you relate to their humanity in a way that allows you to just be in the moment. And that's that's my just mundane practice of being open to teams because then hopefully I have a better attitude and I can do what Mary said, which is to help out instead of everyone being siloed and everyone being in their own little world. That's why I loved your
0: comment about just like, forget it, <laughs> just connecting with what's in front of you. Because that's where life is, right? That's where you are. You're not with some following some, I mean, maybe we should be following some algorithm. Yeah. But I, I don't know. To me, that's really spoke to me tremendously. And I feel like that is a great way to, boost your well-being and boost your meaning and like remind yourself that it's not just about these checkboxes or those algorithms like you're taking care of a child and their family and these things are supposed to be tools and help you and help you not you know have your biases that we all come in with right and help you have safeguards and whatnot but like it's easy to get lost in that stuff. It's easy to get right. lost in time discipline, but I, I just, the way you said that about just connecting just, I thought was beautiful. And oh, I feel like it you. does speak a lot to burnout. This is obviously audio only, but Donna yeah. has this great shirt and a, mat, a mug. And if you could tell us all what it means.
1: Well, it's <laughs> you're making me laugh. It is from my favorite sitcom of all times, the good place. And um I won't give away any part of it for anyone who hasn't watched it because you have to, I could give it all away if I say too much. But um Jeremy Baremy, so it's a cursive writing that um is time in the afterlife, is um it's not linear. And so a question was asked about how time works, and they said, well, it it operates like a Jeremy Baremy, and it's this nonlinear looping back, looping forward. All of these crazy intertwined. So, if you imagine the English cursive, it's Jeremy Bear Me. and it's just I love it because it's just a reminder that time is not linear, and that if we can remember to just kind of, kind of take that, you know, lightly, the idea that drives us kind of all mad and crazy, right? This idea of the linear Chronos inching forward and sort of working against us, and all of that. And just kind of relax and um, know that um, just because this one event, this one thing does not seem like it's going exactly in the way or as fast as we want, that that Jeremy bear me, baby. I
0: love it. That's a great mantra to have every day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
0: Well, I just wanted to thank all of you. Thank you to Lily and my co-host for facilitating this awesome discussion. And thank you for all of our listeners to listening about crisis management, communication, time, teen dynamics. We hope that you enjoyed the podcast, that it offered an opportunity to um, be introspective, to expand our understanding and awareness of not only ourselves, but how we see each other and our patients. And um, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please subscribe to this podcast. On Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a
3: Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.